Last, uh, in June, I preached here, uh, and we talked about prayer. And, and I shared with you my struggles of prayer that I haven't prayed in my life because uh, I found it boring, uh, I, or I was ashamed. I found it boring, and I didn't realize how much I needed. Prayer in, in, in this calendar year, uh, prayer has just been such a wonderful gift, and, and I've learned how to, how to pray through psalms, and, uh, and that's been so wonderful for me. But uh, before I talk about, um, before we go into our passage today, I, I want to follow up about our prayer sermon. So um, if you weren't here, uh, just maybe take a nap or, or do something for the next few minutes. But um, if you were, uh, and you actually remember it, uh, I, 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 I thought something happened uh, a, just a few weeks ago that I really should share um, with Riverwood as a, as a testimony uh, to what God does through prayer. And so uh, it was 1.30 and, uh, a.m., and I woke up, and I was like, ha, 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 ha. And my wife says, just stop. Go, stop freaking out. Like, fall asleep. It's just something in the dryer. And then at 4 a.m., uh, I heard the same sound. And my wife is, is at the window, and she's, she's very concerned. And I said, oh, dear, it's fine. We're just drying shoes. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you told me something was in the dryer. And, and she said, no, I was asleep when I said that. Uh, it, so what happened was at 1.30 and then again at 4, um, and we found this out the next morning, um, some, some men parked in our alley. They stood in our next-door neighbor's lawn and then the next house to their, their house, and they, and they shot um, almost 60 bullets at uh, a house right across the street. The people that were living at the house were new tenants, and so w- w- when you when you live uh, in any neighborhood, uh, but on my block this is a big concern of ours. Anytime we get new renters, we get kind of worried. You think, are these going to be good people? Or are they going to be people who are attracting violence? And so I am just livid. I mean, it's eight o'clock in the morning. It's Monday, and I I, I see seven bullet holes in. Uh, their SUV. <laughs> this is not how I want to start on my Monday. And so I'm a preacher, and I'm just like cursing these people under my breath. That's how Monday started for me. I talked to my, my neighbor to my left, and we said, oh, oh, they say they're not in a gang. Right. Of course they're in a gang. Nothing like this had ever happened for three years that we live here, not right on our block at least. And the two, three weeks into them moving in, violence already. Great. These people are gang members attracting violence. So I'm angry, and uh, I, I don't have an office, uh, so I, I often office from a, a local cafe. And I start my day, I uh, open up the Psalms, not because I'm in the mood to pray, really just because I'm like, man, I keep preaching a sermon about praying through the Psalms. I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't. And so I open up the Psalm, and I'm just, I'm just angry. Like I, I, as, I'm, as I'm praying through the Psalms, I don't even have the words to say, and then I get to, uh, to a line. And, and, and through, that, through that psalm, uh, the, the, the Spirit, I believe, brought to my mind something. My, my pastor, uh, who I'm an apprentice of, uh, told me. He said, when you're a church planner, you're a pastor for everyone in the neighborhood who doesn't have a pastor. I thought, okay. So some people in my church, some people that I pastor, just had 60 bullets fly at their house last night. 
I bet they're pretty scared too. Even if they were in a gang, um, these people are probably pretty scared, pretty frightened. So anyway, later that uh, afternoon, I came home and uh, I saw them out. And I said, how are you feeling? We're scared. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> but even as, even as they said that, I'm like, well, you're scared. You're the one who brought this into the neighborhood. And so I talked to them. Uh, and it wasn't too long into talking to them, realizing, like, these people are just nice, new people in the neighborhood. And this was totally unexpected by them. Um, and what seems to have happened is they were misidentified uh, for another house that was involved in, in a murder uh, a couple weeks earlier. As I left their house, before that, I, I said, can I pray for you? And so I prayed. And then as I was about to leave, I said, hey, would it help to just get some people on the block together, um, sit on my front porch and just uh, kind of vouch for you, tell them you're a great neighbor, and, uh, and then we can maybe see if there are some practical things we can do just to watch out for one another on the block. She said, that would be great. And so for three years, we've had barbecues and things like that, and we've gotten to know a lot of neighbors as individuals, but haven't really seen people on our block come together. And we really want to see that. Well, at this little gathering, we had uh, seven households represented, like all on my front porch. We didn't have any room to fit everyone. Um, we got together, and we talked, and we laughed. And I heard people say, oh, hey, how long have you lived here to other people? So, oh, well, we've been here for five years. Oh, yeah, I've been here for 10 years. <laughs> and they haven't met. And, and, and we saw people come together. And uh, uh, we're, we're hopefully starting a new Bible study um, from some neighbors that, that found out that, that we have Bible studies and, and who are, are saying, hey, we, we'd love to be a part, part of a Bible study. And so here's what I, I want to say. My reaction to this was anger. My reaction uh, to this was to show hatred for these new neighbors without even meeting them, without even talking to them. You know, what if, what if when national tragedies happen, instead of going to Facebook right away or Twitter, what if we went to prayer? What if when, when our spouse does something that really bothers us, not that my wife would do anything like that, but it's my problem usually, but uh, what if we went to prayer? You know, what if our boss treats us just you know, he doesn't, she doesn't know how much I'm worth. And what if we went to prayer? You know, if I hadn't gone to prayer, like I was in my mind planning, how can I get these people out of my neighborhood? Like, how could I treat them so poorly that they wouldn't want to be my neighbor anymore? Like, that's what I was thinking at eight o'clock. And by 830, I was praying for them. And by 1130, I laid hands and was praying for them. And by 7 o'clock, I was vouching for them, telling other people they're great neighbors. That's, that's what God does through prayer. There is, I don't know how this works. God is totally sovereign, and yet he chooses, he, he wants to do things through you that would not be done if you were not praying. And I don't know how all that works. I don't really care. It's just true. And God wants to do things through Riverwood. You can have the best preaching in the world, which you do, 
You can have the best music. You, you can have the best strategies for church growth. But if, 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 if there's no prayer, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. We are not going to see people come to know God without prayer. You are not going to see marriages healed and, and, and families restored without, without prayer. What if instead of going to show our anger in whatever way you do that, what if you took that anger to God and you allowed His Spirit um, to influence your behavior so that you can follow Christ and look like Him um, in your family, on your block, in Waverly and in the world? Well, hey, we've got a lot to cover, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so weak. My words cannot change people without your Spirit. So would you work through my weak words? Would your Spirit work in every mind and every heart here this morning? that your son could be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Say, what do you want about my neighborhood? I like it because I'm from Iowa and it reminds me more of Iowa. Uh, My neighborhood has a very small town feel. Even though we're in Minneapolis, uh, we we have a very small town uh, feel. And some, some of the, I just don't fit in in every neighborhood uh, in, in Minneapolis. And I'm, I'm not, like, hippie enough, I guess. I don't, I don't quite get it. Um, but this is being recorded, so I better not elaborate too much. Uh, ben, uh, Reese, and I, who Ben helped me drive down here, um, we're part of a church called Gospel Life Church, and that's about 12 minutes away. And uh, the culture between that neighborhood and my neighborhood are just so different. Uh, and as I drive from my house uh, to church services on Sunday morning, uh, you're just seeing like all the cultures of, of Minneapolis uh, collide. And, and I pass through uh, one or two uh, Buddhist meditation centers. And, and, and Buddhism, particularly among, among young uh, white people, and when I say Buddhism, I mean Buddhism, uh, Buddhism light, <laughs> not, not full-on Buddhism, but the kind of Buddhism that still allows you to drink beer, uh, Buddhism light is growing rapidly among young people. And th- this idea that like we, we, we start here and there's a way that, that we can, over however many lifetimes we need, we can earn our way to uh, nirvana. Earn our way to be these types of people. Why is it so attractive? That's what I want to ask this morning. Why is that sort of uh, religion or, or, or semi-religion, why is that so attractive? And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14 this morning. So open your Bibles or your phones or whatever to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, 11 through 14. Uh, chapter 10 is a big number 10. Verse 11 is a little number 11.
Not only is Buddhism growing rapidly, but I believe that popular evangelicalism, what we're in, (laughs) popular evangelicalism looks more like Buddhism than it does true, authentic, historic Christianity. Popular evangelicalism looks more like Buddhism than it does like Christianity. And that's a problem. Uh, this morning, I was like, I want to make sure I'm getting all this Buddhist stuff right. So, so, so I went, I was reading some about it, and, and there are paragraphs where I would think that was some like popular Christian writer. <laughs> popular evangelicalism looks, in some ways, way more like Buddhism than what we're going to see in Hebrews 10. So let's just open, let's open the Bible. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Why are works religions, including popular evangelicalism, so popular? Why? Because we want to be able to point back to our success. We want to be able to, like, at the end of our lives, be like, man, I started here and I got here. I did it. I succeeded. I picked myself up off my moral bootstraps And I made a name for myself. We want to be able to point to our own success. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Every priest stands. People are so tired. People... People even, even, not just here, people out, out there sleeping in, going to the park, going to the kids' baseball game, whatever. People are so tired, are so tired. of. Uh, I, I just meet people all the time who, who are just feeling so burdened. They're trying to become better. They're trying to become better. But even in the church, people are exhausted. They've got a hundred different things that they're trying to be, especially women, especially moms. In our culture, you've gotta you've gotta give birth. You've gotta like look like this woman on this magazine right after. And and then you you've gotta work outside the home, but then you, you've gotta make sure your kids are, are 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 perfect little angels. And you've gotta make sure your husband's always happy with you. And whether those are our cultural pressures or whether they're just internal pressures, people are tired, just exhausted. Look at this. Every priest stands. Every day, every priest stands, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice for his sins. People are so tired. And while we're attracted to this type of works religion, whether that be... Um, uh, uh, Buddhism light, whether that be popular evangelicalism or, or whether that be, uh, no, nah, I'm totally going to abandon God. 
but I really want to look good in the eyes of the world. No matter what it is, popular uh, works religions are exhausting people, even people in the church. So what do you point back to? If I were to say, I know I'm right with God because blank. Well, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, uh, they point back to two things, mostly. Two things. This is how we know we're God's people. This is how we know God's faithful to us. First, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Saying, God is the God who called Abraham and told him, I'm going to bless you to make you a blessing. God is the God that, that stuck with Isaac, even when it didn't seem he, he, he'd find a wife. God is the God who was faithful to Jacob, even though he was just a piece of work, you know. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is faithful. He was faithful to our forefathers. He'll be faithful to us. Secondly, God is the God of the Exodus. God is the God who brought Israel through the waters on dry ground. God brought them out of Egypt. They're at the waters, nowhere to go, impossible, no way out. Egypt comes, Egypt comes behind them, their armies. These untrained, uh, un they're untrained in war, been in slavery for 430 years. There's no way out. But God is the God who brought us through the waters on dry ground. That's what they pointed to. What do you point to? Well, maybe you say, well, man, I know I'm a Christian because I, I come from this, like, long family line of Christians. Or, you know, I know I'm a Christian because I figured I'm a registered Republican. I might as well go the, 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 the devil. I, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, I know I'm right with God. Because I asked Jesus into my heart. What about that one? That's real. There's some truth in that. But it's not the full answer. I know I'm right with God because I remember when I was four, I asked Jesus into my heart. Or I, I know I'm right with God because, or, or, and I know I can trust God because, man, I've seen God do some really amazing spiritual uh, things. My friend... My friend moved to Minneapolis um, from the south to help me plant a church. He was the first person I ever met as a 19-year-old who also wanted to plant churches. I thought that was pretty cool. And, and uh, when we were 20, he moved and he helped us uh, start the first church we started called Jacob's Well Dinkytown. But uh, living with him, realizing more and more, he really struggled. I mean, he struggled with, uh, we have something in common. Uh, uh, both struggling with depression, but also we have something in common, really struggling with doubt. Like, is, is God real? And as, as a, especially as a younger, I mean, you think I am a younger person, I guess, but especially, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, really struggling with doubt. And we both shared that. We both had our, had our struggles of, of belief we both had struggles with depression. And, and one time I, I asked him, I said, you know, how do you know you're right with God? Or how do, you, how, do you, how do you know you can trust God? And he said, you know, I have at times felt God do some really amazing spiritual things in my heart. Something like that. I've seen God just do some amazing things. 
He's no longer a Christian. He's no longer a Christian. Your internal feelings. You even seeing miracles. Your uh, self-justification of, well, I asked Jesus in my heart, therefore I'm right with him. Your feelings of moral superiority, whatever it is, these things cannot sustain you. My friend moved hundreds of miles from his family to plant a church, and he has abandoned the faith. The feelings of, of, of those internal spiritual emotions, they cannot sustain your faith. So what do we point back to? Well, in the New Testament, we now point back to our exodus, which is even a greater and more miraculous exodus than the first. We point back to our exodus. We point back to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. That anchor, it holds within the veil. Even when darkness hides his face, we rest on his unchanging grace that was made evident and manifest on the cross. You see, feelings are so up and down, but the cross stands steady. The cross, a dead Messiah on the cross can sustain your faith because he rose from the grave. If we trust in anything else, we'll abandon him. Verse 11 through 13. Uh, 12 and 13. Okay, so they're standing, they're offering repeatedly the same sacrifice for sin. Verse 12. But... But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So look at this. The priests offer repeated sacrifice. God offered a single sacrifice. The priests stand. Jesus is sitting. The priests work. Jesus is waiting. Jesus' sacrifice is better. You are right with God. You can stop trying to earn the relationship you already have because Jesus offered one single sacrifice for your sins. And this single sacrifice brought you and bought you redemption. And this is really hard to believe. This is the greatest struggle in the Christian life to believe this. It isn't pornography. It isn't gossip. It, 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 it isn't your bad attitude with your kids. The greatest struggle in the Christian life is to believe in grace. The greatest struggle in the Christian life is that I don't have to earn anything because God has given me everything in his son. And I so regularly forget this. Um, I, I want to read a Bonhoeffer quote. You say, well, every time you come here, you're, you're, you're quoting this old German guy. Well, maybe you should read a book from him. <laughs> Am I... Not subtle, all right? He's my favorite writer. Uh, he was a German pastor uh, in the 1920s, uh, 30s, 40s. Uh, 
uh, in German. Uh, was tried to kill Hitler. I mean, just you, I mean, you should read about him. All right, but anyway, he wrote a book uh, called Life Together. This would be good for your growth groups, maybe, but this isn't my place. Uh, Bonhoeffer said this: God has put His word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other people other men or other people. He was in the 30s. Don't blame him. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. If you've been not paying attention because of the old quote, just do it now. Give me one sentence here. This is a shocking sentence, and it has so helped me. Bonhoeffer says, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brothers is sure. So, man, when I sin, and I'm thinking, man, okay, okay, okay. I, I, I've confessed my sin. Okay, I know God loves you. I, I know God's right with me. I know he doesn't hold that against me. Okay, I'm trying hard to believe, trying hard to believe. And when I bring that sin to my friend David, who has taught me this, this whole sermon is just me splatting out what I've learned from David for the last four years. When I confess that sin to David, and David shares the gospel with me. You say, man, how do we at Riverwood, how do we get better at sharing the gospel to non-Christians? How do we get better at sharing the gospel to out, uh, people uh, outside our church? Man, if you're like most churches, you don't even share the gospel to each other. That's crazy. I confess my sin to David. And, and David says, Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin of gossiping about your relative. And he rose from the grave and you are right with the Father. My own heart is uncertain. But David just says it. It's a fact out of the mouth of David. Your forgiveness is a fact. It's an objective reality. Your forgiveness is not just, well, well uh, your true forgiveness in Christ is not just sort of a nice idea. Like, wouldn't it be nice if uh, there was a religion with, with grace and forgiveness? No, 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 no. Your forgiveness, your right relationship with God is an objective fact because it's based on something totally outside of you. It's based on the historic event of Christ's death and his resurrection. And we need to share this message with each other. In our church, in our churches, we talk about everything. And we talk about some good stuff. We talk about spiritual disciplines. We talk about parenting strategies. We talk about racial reconciliation. All good stuff. It's so rare to find in a church people who are talking about our right standing with God based on Jesus' death. 
like maybe the pastor from time to time in an evangelistic sermon. But what if it was just part of our life? What if it was part of our regular routine in a growth group? That it wouldn't be awkward to just tell someone, man, you're feeling guilty about that? Jesus died on the cross for you. <laughs> what if in your growth groups, or maybe as part of them, or maybe in the relationships from them, that, man, you're, you're at a coffee shop uh, with a friend. You're, you're, you're on the tractor uh, with a friend. I'm trying to make cultural connections here. <laughs> and, and, and a friend says, what if it's just regular to confess sin to one another? Man, you know what? I... I yelled at my wife, and I was totally, yeah, I feel like such an idiot. You know, man, I, I looked at pornography. What if that was just regular, to confess sins to one another? I've been in churches where it's been a normal part of our life to confess sin, but what's missing is teaching people how to respond to when people confess so when someone confesses a sin to you, say they say, man, I did whatever. Let's say pornography, okay? This is rampant in our culture, by the way. That's why it comes to my brain so quickly. Because it's so common. We need to, oh, Lord, help us. So when someone says, man, I looked at pornography, how, how do I respond? Well, I don't respond in these three ways. First, I don't respond uh, in these two ways, sorry. I don't respond with some therapy session. Well, maybe it's because of, you know, your relationship with your father or something like that. You know, maybe if you, or, or you know, hey, maybe you should get on, on some uh, internet filters or something like that. Like, those aren't bad things if you can help your friend in there, but that's not our primary response when someone confesses sin to us. Now, the second one, definitely don't do hey, you know, I sinned. Man, you know, it's all right. I'm a sinner too. Never say that. Remember the story of Noah when everyone was thinking about evil all the time? And I imagine that in the days of Noah, people were like, I, I sinned. And they're like, man, it's all right. I'm a sinner too. Well, that didn't do anything. Why? Because what happens in the story of Noah? God kills them all. It, it does, it is not good news for you that Patrick Ray is also a sinner. I, me being an idiot doesn't help you. The good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Not that we're both in some sin club. So I just want to do this very quickly. Um, Ben, not only did you get to drive me, but you get to be used as an example. Okay, so ben comes to me and he says, man, I, I sin, you know, whatever. We're not going to say a fake sin. He says that to me. I'm going to look Ben in the eyes. I'm going to say, Ben, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And you are totally right with God because he absorbed the full wrath of God in your place. And you are no longer a sinner. You are a son of God. I, w I was just pretending that was awkward. I'm still getting used to it. 
Maybe that's why we don't say it, because it doesn't sound like uh, interesting enough. You know, it doesn't sound complicated enough. It's so simple. We want a faith more complicated, don't we? Those works religions. Jesus is sitting. The work is finished, but, but, but we forget this. And, and we need a brother, we need a sister in our lives to remind us of this. We need a brother, we need a sister to remind us that we're not in a life of earning God's love. We're in a life of realizing God's love. Uh, what's the Christian life all about? It's not about these uh, two things here. The Christian life is not a second chance. The Christian life is not a blank slate. If, if the Christian life were a second chance, that would be the worst news in the world. Why? Because, man, I just mess it up again. Christian life isn't a second chance. In Christ, God has given you a new identity. You haven't given a, try better next time. You've given a, I'm adopting you, and now you're my son. Christian life, and don't misunderstand me here, the Christian life is not about growing closer and closer and closer to God. You're in Christ. How much closer can you get? The Christian life is about realizing God's love for you. That's what you get to do every day. Jesus said the work of God is to believe in the Son. This is your work today. Believe in the Son. Abide in His love. So how do we think about maturing as Christians? All right, I have a daughter. It's hard for me to preach sermons like this without talking about my daughter because I love my daughter, right? My daughter could do nothing that would make me not delight her. That's not totally true, but God is perfect, so let's pretend. Now, I really pretend, that, I really struggle with this idea that God is disappointed with me, right? I struggle with this idea that, that I can do something this week that God will got to love me more next Sunday, that I can impress him. I've struggled with chronic shame, just a chronic daily almost feeling at times of God must just, he must just think I'm the worst. Maybe he loves me, but he loves everyone. But you know what? God calls us his children, and he's a better dad than I am. God is so pleased with those who are in Christ. So I don't, I don't think uh, about the Christian life like it's a second chance, a blank slate, or growing closer and closer to God. I think about it in terms of God is my father. I am Adeline's father, and I love her. I mean, there's nothing she can do to lose my love. And when I look at her, I think, sometimes she's sleeping. Sometimes she's sleeping. And, and I, especially when she was younger, you know, she'd be in the little crib and I'd come home and I didn't get to see her today and I would just look at her. Say, I love this little girl. She does nothing for me. I just delight in her. And I am so excited to train her and to see her grow into a passionate, gentle, strong woman. That's how God views us. Look at verse 14. 
for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are now being sanctified. I totally love my daughter, and because of that, I am deeply committed to her maturity. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time. You know what that means? That means you're right with God. You have a perfect standing with God. Those who are now being sanctified. You have a perfect standing with God. You have a place in the house. You know, Jesus Christ died on the cross, not for his children. Jesus Christ died on the cross for his enemies. Jesus Christ died on the cross to make the enemies of the Father the sons and the daughters of the Father. And, and, and through God's Spirit, God gives us a desire to be like his son, Jesus. You have a room in God's house. You have a bed. In Christ, we have a safe household to mature in. In Christ, we have a safe household to mature in. God is totally committed to your maturity, and we should be committed to each other's maturity. Psalm uh, 141, verse 5, let a righteous man strike me for it is a kindness. Here's what this means. Ben's going to rebuke me on the way home probably because I'm going to say something I shouldn't. And I can do two things after that. Or I can do three things because we're in the Midwest. I can be like, you know what? I want to hear it, man. Or two, I, I can maybe just not say anything, but just I'm going to start hanging out with Ben less. That's the Midwestern option. Or three, I can realize that I have a perfect standing with a father and every rebuke now is a kindness because I can take that and even if there's only 4% truth to what he's saying saying to me, I can take that 4% of truth and I can ask God through his spirit to use that rebuke to make me more like his son, Jesus. It's a win-win. God loves you. You're right with him. You have a room in a house and he is so deeply committed to your maturity. Would you memorize that verse, Hebrews 10, 14? It's helped me so much. Hebrews 10, 14. Think about memorizing that verse. I think it'll do wonders for your growth groups. I think it'll do wonders for your parenting even. Can you imagine if Riverwood Church were a people who regularly reminded one another of their perfect standing in the love of God? Can you imagine what that'd do for Waverly? God is committed to us. God is committed to you, Riverwood, individuals of Riverwood. God loves you, and he is committed to making you an adult, a strong person who looks like Jesus. That's your goal in life, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what good fathers do. In love, they mature their children. And that's what the Christian life is about. This morning, if you're tired, find your rest in God. Consider the cross daily. And don't keep it to yourself. Remind one another of God's love poured out for you on the cross, displayed powerfully in his resurrection. I'm going to be around after the service. If you have any questions, just come.